Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. My name is Jonathan Carter and I am a surgeon and my specialty is operating for obesity. So I want to tell you a little bit about this radical idea of actually operating for obesity and uh, help create a broad understanding why we do it. And I want to talk a little bit, before I jump into the surgery part, about just obesity in general and share some facts that maybe you've heard. Um, It's funny, I was just recently on the beach and I was walking along and admiring uh, all the people laying on the beach. And as a product of modern culture, I naturally, like maybe many of you, appreciated when a body kind of looked like this. Because here we are in the year 2012, that's our ideal. But it wasn't very long ago in our collective history as a species when this was the ideal body type. And that was because we all looked more like this guy down here. It's interesting how obesity is a cultural phenomenon. So it's always good to start out with a patient. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about a patient of mine. Uh, Her name was Rochelle. She was 35 years old. And at her height of five foot one and her weight of 236 pounds, uh, her calculated, calculated body mass index was 45. And the body mass index is how uh, physicians uh, can tell if you're obese or not. Essentially, anything above 30 is considered obesity by definition. And when you get up over 40, then it's called severe obesity or morbid obesity. And already her obesity had started to damage her body. She had mild depression. She had obstructive sleep apnea, meaning she stopped breathing at night. It's sort of a profound uh, form of snoring. Um, She was on a breathing machine at night to help her uh, keep from uh, respiratory arrest. She had asthma. She had polycystic ovarian syndrome. Her periods were very irregular. and, um, And she had mild heartburn. And like many patients who have struggled with this disease, obesity, she had tried a lot of things to try to control her weight. She'd been on Weight Watchers before. She'd been on Atkins. She'd been on Herbalife. She'd been on South Beach. She'd seen her physician. Her physician had referred her to a nutritionist. She had worked with a nutritionist for a couple years. And with each of these, she found modest success. She was able to get 20, 30 pounds off. But the problem is, after a couple years, Her old eating habits would kind of creep back into her life, and the weight would come back. And before long, she was just as heavy as she ever was. Now, does that pattern sound familiar to anybody in the room? I mean, who among us hasn't tried to shed a little bit of extra unwanted pounds? And you can do it for a while, six months, a year, two years. But sooner or later, your weight starts to creep back up. And here's Rochelle, really, really sweet young girl. So what do we have to offer, Rochelle? Well, let me take a step back and tell you that there's a lot of Rochelles among us. Um, One great way to see this is if you go to the CDC website and you look up obesity, you can find these slides. And what the CDC has done is they've taken every state and essentially cold-called people in their homes and said, How much do you weigh and how tall are you? And from that, you can figure out whether they're obese or not. Now, we all know everyone lies a little bit. 
So if anything, this is an underestimate of weight. And then what they do is they calculate what percentage of the population has a BMI less than 30. Now that's the definition of obesity. If you want to say what's the medical definition of, of obesity, it's a BMI greater than 30. So this is back in the year 1990, so we're 22 years ago, and here's how our country looked. And you can see here we are in California. We had less than 10% obesity prevalence. And as you might predict, down in the Deep South and in the Midwest, they had a little bit higher prevalence, up to 10 to 14%. Okay, so this is 20 years ago. Now watch what happens over time. In 1991, we had to add a new color, 15 to 19%, led by Louisiana, Mississippi. Now, I want you, as I go through these, to keep your eye on Mississippi. Okay. And you can see some of the light blue states filled in, and, and we've got darker blue. Here's 1992. Here's 1993. You'll notice all of them, all the light blue have filled in except for a couple East Coast. And look at the dark blue here. 1994, here's 1995, 96, 97, we had to add a new color. We're up to 20%, now we're up one in five Americans in that state obese. We're not talking, we've excluded overweight. These are, this is just obese, one in five, led by Mississippi. You guys ever been there? There's a lot of fattening foods, barbecue pork, good, good stuff to eat, but not so good for your weight. 1998, 1999. Now, if you were an epidemiolo epidemiologist and you studied viruses, you would say, hmm, maybe obesity is virally mediated because the pathogen seems to start in the Deep South and it tends to travel to the Midwest and then it kind of fills in the coast, just like a viral, viral epidemic does. Here's 2000. 2001, we had to add another color. Now we're up to 25% or more, led by... So if you want to know what the future holds for us, keep your eye on Mississippi. 2002. Notice there's no more light blue, there's no more medium blue, we're all just dark blue and orange and yellow. 2003. 2004. Here's 2005. We had to add yet another color. 30% obesity, led by Mississippi. <laughs> Mississippi. 2006. 2007. 2008. 2009, and Colorado's holding out until 2010. This is the most recent data. This is a problem. This is a big problem, pardon the pun. Why is it a problem? Because obesity is unhealthy. It's intrinsically unhealthy. And why is it unhealthy? because it goes hand in hand with all of these diseases. It essentially damages every organ system in your body. Some of these you may be familiar with, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol. We all know that that goes hand in hand with obesity. Some of these you may not realize. 
colon cancer. Do you know if you're obese, you got twice the risk of colon cancer? Two times. You have a higher risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer as well. Hernias. Now, I do general surgery. I do hernia surgery when I'm not doing bariatric surgery. And I'll tell you, most of the hernias I see are directly attributable to obesity. Generally, skinny people, you'll occasionally see a skinny person with a hernia, but 9 out of 10, it's an obese person because if you open up the abdomen to do an operation, you sew up the muscles. If it's an obese person, they're not going to heal right because there's just too much pressure pushing out. Um, this is a uh, this is a rare disease where you're so obese that the um, fat pushes on a nerve in your thigh called the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, and you get thigh numbness um, on on the lateral parts of your thighs. It's also seen in belly dancers, so belly dancers and obese people. Um, and then there's all the psychological issues that go hand in hand. So it's pretty clear if you think about that map of the country. And then you look at this list of diseases that we got a problem. Okay? Once our obese people start turning 50, 60, 70 years old, they're going to develop all of these diseases heart disease, strokes, diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. And I'll tell you a fact our society, we do not have the healthcare resources to deal with this additional disease burden. We just don't have the money. We're already spending one out of six every dollars. One out of six dollars in the entire economy are spent in health care. But I'll tell you, it's not enough once this tidal wave hits us. So this is a big problem. You and I have to do something about this. And indeed, all of those diseases do take years off your life. This is a study where they took about 20,000 Americans and they stratified them by body mass index. And they looked at how many years of life expectancy did you lose by virtue of your body mass index. So a normal person is anybody 25 or less. That's down here. And pretty much you can see the more obese you are, the more years of life expectancy you lose, such that by the time you get into super obesity or severe obesity, we're talking about 10 years off your life expectancy. And it didn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Same pattern. So there's really no such thing as fit and fat. Obesity essentially correlates very well with life expectancy, and if you're morbidly obese, it's going to take about 10 years off your lifespan by virtue of all those diseases I just showed. One of those are going to get you. So what do we have? We've, we, we've got a problem. What can we do about it? Well, everyone knows, right? Go on a diet. Who's been on a diet? <laughs> Everybody raises their hand. I've been on a diet, too. Okay. So is diet our answer? Well, it seems to be a good starting point. And I think that um, diets work great if your goal is to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds, which just looking at this room, I think most of us in this room are probably in that category. Diet's the best treatment for you. Okay. But I have to tell you something about diets. The effect tends to be pretty short-lived. Here's a study. This is, I love this study, and I, I want to spend a little time telling you about it because this is the truth about diets. Um, this was a study that was done by Frank Sachs, and Frank Sachs is in Boston. He's on the faculty at Harvard, and his area of expertise is nutrition and diets. 
and actually drugs to, to treat obesity. And he's been doing this for many, many years. He's about as good as they get. And he did a very interesting study to look at the question, does it matter, is there any truth to these fad diets that we're constantly inundated with? Right now, what's the fad? The, the big fad is probably Atkins, although maybe Atkins is starting to wear off a little bit. Um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you might remember the high-carb diet um, where you ate, you're supposed to eat nothing but carbs. We've got Weight Watchers, which is kind of balanced. And you know, I think the world needs to know, is it possible to just concentrate on a specific macronutrient and trick your body into feeling full, right? So for Atkins, what is it? Atkins is high-protein, low-carb, right? And in America, high-protein almost always means high-fat. So an Atkins diet is high-fat, high-protein, low-carb. And if you believe Dr. Atkins or anybody who believes in this diet then um, you believe that the diet works because somehow you're changing your body's metabolism or you're tricking your brain into feeling less hungry. Um, so what Dr. Sachs did is he said, okay, well, you know, the macronutrient composition of food is something we can control, so why don't we do it rigorously? We'll do it scientifically. And so we're going to take 800 people and we're going to randomize them, and a quarter of them we're going to do low-fat, low-protein diet, a quarter of them, we're going to do high-fat, high-protein diet. A quarter of them, we're going to do a low-fat, high-protein diet. And a quarter of them, we're going to do a high-fat, low-protein diet. And since every piece of food is either a fat, protein, or carb, you can kind of fill in the blank of what the carbs would be. That would be the remainder. And then he said, you know, I want to do everything medically possible to get these people to stay on their diets. So he brought them all in. First of all, he screened. The only people that were part of the study were very highly educated people. They tended to be Harvard faculty or Harvard postdocs or Harvard students. Um, so very high-functioning, intelligent people. Um, and he brought them in, and he assigned them to the treatment groups, and they did everything he could. They met with doctors. They met with nutritionists. They had uh, support groups. Uh, they had written materials. They had slideshows. They had videos. And then the people went out and started to do their diets. And then he would call them two weeks later, how's it going? And he'd send a nurse out, and then he'd bring them back for more support therapy. I mean, it was truly a huge effort. He did, he did maximally medical therapy, basically. And he followed them for two years. And this is what their weights did. So each one of these is one of those four groups. And zero is the baseline weight here. And at six months, lo and behold, they all lost weight. Well, how much weight did they lose? So this is in kilograms. So they lost about 6 kilograms, so we're talking about 12, 15 pounds, something like that. Not bad. Now, look at something else. All of these groups are the different groups here. It didn't matter what your macronutrient composition was. The Atkins group, which essentially is a high-fat, high-protein diet, that group of people didn't fare any better than those who were on a different macronutrient composition, provided that the calorie count was the same for both groups, which was how it was programmed. Okay? So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It's calories in, calories burned. If you're positive, you're going to put on weight, and if you're negative, you're going to lose weight. Okay? 
which is to say all of us, the human body, the human engine, obeys the second law of thermodynamics. It's inviolate. Okay? So it really, this study took a lot of the wind of the sail, out of the sails of that concept of the diet industry. Now look what happened over time. Here we are at 12 months, a little bit more weight, and then out here we're at 18 months and 24 months. So by two years, people had already regained half of all the weight they lost, and it didn't matter which group they were in. Okay. This study was published, and the editor of the New England Journal um, wrote this editorial to accompany the paper. And I'll just read this to you. He wrote, the study was led by, well, he wrote, the inability of the volunteers to maintain their diets must give us pause. This study was led by seasoned investigators who were experienced in the performance of diet and drug trials. The participants were highly educated, enthusiastic, carefully selected. They were offered 59 group and 13 individual training sessions over the course of two years. Uh, Nonetheless, their weight was going up. Thus, even these highly motivated, intelligent participants who were coached by expert professionals could not achieve the weight losses needed to reverse the obesity epidemic. These results would probably have been worse among poor, uneducated subjects. Evidently, individual treatment is powerless against an environment that offers so many high-calorie foods and labor-saving devices. Pretty pessimistic. Now, I just do this. I'm going to take advantage of the podium a little bit to just rail against the diet industry. And My apologies if any of you are employed by the diet industry. (laughs) Um, If you think about it, I'll I'll tell you the diet industry is about a $40 billion industry in this country. And they're pretty much selling you on one idea. The idea is that by adjusting the macronutrient composition of your food, that you can trick your body into not being hungry and therefore consume less calories. That's really what it's all about, right? So Atkins is the high protein. Uh, Weight Watchers is kind of the even and buy your food from us. Um, uh, there's high carb diets there's high fat diets um, there's the Brussels sprout diet I mean any diet you can think of has been marketed okay? but they're all the same in the same underlying assumption that it's really about it, it just turning these macronutrient dials and finding the right balance so you don't feel hungry anymore but I'll tell you scientifically whenever it's been studied it's completely bogus doesn't matter just like this trial. Well, why do they want you to believe that? Because you can spend your whole life going from diet to diet to diet, opening your wallet the entire time, right? From fad to fad to fad. And my patients that's sad, most of them have wasted 10, 15, 20 years doing just that before they realize Jesus. It's not that... It's not that I'm failing. It's just these diets, you know, they're all the same. It doesn't matter which diet I've tried. So um, clearly a diet is just not effective. Now, for the patients I see, they're 100, 150, 200 pounds overweight. So clearly a diet, 10, 15, 20 pounds, is not going to do it for them. So we really need a more powerful tool. Well, what about drugs? I just got one slide on drugs. 
Now, I'll tell you, if you look at that map of the country and you are a pharma executive, you see that map of the country and all you can see is dollar signs, right? Because you've got 150 million Americans who are interested in a pill that would help them lose weight. And if you could just create that pill with minimal side effects, it would be the biggest drug ever done, ever created, if you think about it. And I'll tell you, there's tremendous interest in developing that pill. Maybe we'll have that someday. Who knows? But the problem is we haven't really found that pill. And the reason why is your energy metabolism is very fundamental in your body's physiology. I mean, even a one-celled organism, even a bacteria, carefully regulates its energy metabolism. And it's with multiple redundant pathways. And so you might have a drug that blocks one pathway, but there's so much redundancy in the system, it doesn't really work in the overall organism. And that's the story time and time again. Now, if you go out in the world and you look, there are actually five drugs that are available to treat obesity. And they're all very interesting. Um, the, first, the first two, diethylpropion and phentermine, are basically work sympathetomimetics. So what does that mean? It means that they're basically speed. Now, has anyone ever known a speed addict? They tend to be, you know, scrawny, little torpy type people with bad teeth. (laughs) But they tend to be pretty skinny. The reason is speed suppresses your hunger at the level of the brain. And it's a pretty potent effect. So what pharma has done is basically made speed derivatives and played upon the side effect of speed. And it works reasonably well. You lose about 3 4% of your body weight beyond placebo. So we're talking about 15, 20 pounds. The problem is that you're on speed. So your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, you're kind of jittery, can't sleep at night. Patients don't really like to be on this for a long period of time. And down the road, what happens if you have high blood pressure and faster heart rate? You're going to damage your cardiovascular system, so that's strokes and heart attacks down the road. Well, that's our original problem. The problem with being obese is that you're at higher risk for that stroke or heart attack. So it doesn't make any sense to go on a drug that loses the weight but then raises your risk of of cardiovascular problems. So that's no good. Orlistat. There was a brand of potato chips named Olean. Do you guys remember Olean when that came out? Who's tried Olean? A couple people. I tried it just for fun. So um, (laughs) it wasn't very fun. Uh, so olein is a lipase inhibitor in the gastrointestinal tract. What does that mean? It means that every gram of fat that you chew and swallow uh, doesn't get absorbed into your body. It just keeps on going, which means it comes out the other end. Now, um, it works, 3% weight loss beyond placebo, but the problem is undigested fat in your stool is really disgusting. Um, uh, Lots of problems with uh, you know, mild incontinence, oil spotting, fecal spotting on your underwear. It's just nothing that, it's just not a, a way that you want to live your life. And so most patients are, weren't tolerant of a lean. But I have, to, I have to hand it to the marketing executive who packaged it. I mean, think about it. Where can, how can we get this drug out there? Mm, let's put it on potato chips. <laughs> the more potato chips you eat, the more drug you get. I mean, that's brilliant. That was brilliant marketing. Um, It just didn't work because of the side effects. (laughs) 
Ramonabant's kind of a fun one. Inhibition of the cannabinoid receptor CB1. So what's that mean? So cannabinoid cannabis, so we're talking about marijuana. So um, you may know what happens when you smoke marijuana. You get the munchies. So, you know, college kids smoke marijuana. They go raid the fridge at, at night, and they eat everything that's in the fridge. And it's a direct effect of the marijuana stimulating your appetite. So what this drug does is kind of like reverse marijuana. It blocks the marijuana receptor. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, what would Seinfeld say? It's bizarro marijuana. It's just like opposite of marijuana. And so it causes satiety. And indeed, you lose a little bit of weight. The problem, again, is the side effects. <clears throat> Nausea, diarrhea, anxiety, depression. So that kind of makes sense. What's the other reason people smoke dope? Chronic cancer patients, lots of chronic nausea, and they smoke dope because it helps their nausea. So it kind of makes sense that this reverse drop, drop actually causes nausea. So that's not very pleasant. And depression turned out to be a big problem. Uh, in the phase one trials in this country, a couple of the study participants got so depressed they committed suicide. And the FDA wisely said, nah, this isn't something we're going to allow to be sold in the United States, which was a really smart decision. That's our FDA protecting us. Uh, Europe made the opposite decision. They marketed it with a black box warning, and it went on the market, and they had a bunch of suicides, and now they're pulling it off. So, and that's the story with drugs. There was, uh, last year, there were four drugs that were up for the FDA. All of them were turned down. Uh, one of them was, uh, the application was revised and then resubmitted, and that one was actually approved. And it's a combination of uh, fentermine and another drug, an antidepressant. Um, and so that's, you might see that on the market. But again, it's fentermine. So we've talked a little bit about the side effects. And right now, there's nothing in the pipeline that looks particularly promising. So drugs don't seem to be our answer to treat this epidemic. So I'm going to focus my comments a little bit about surgery. And a lot of this is just to raise awareness. This is Santa Claus after a gastric bypass. And he says, I've been feeling much more agile. And contrary to popular opinion, every bit is jolly. <laughs> Okay, well, let's go back to Rochelle. So I saw Rochelle, and as you might guess, since I'm a surgeon, she ended up having surgery. And if you look at her weight, she was up here at about 240, and here's her weight. She dropped down, and by 30 months out, she was down to about 130, so she lost about 100 pounds. Her depression's gone, her sleep apnea's gone, her CPAP machine's in the closet, her asthma's resolved. Her polycystic ovarian syndrome is uh, essentially normalized. She has normal periods now. We assume she has normal fertility, but she just got married. So I'll know in a year or two by whether she gets pregnant or not, what, how her fertility is doing, and her heartburn's totally gone. And here she is. This is uh, one year after her operation. This was before she got married. She was in Greece trolling for guys. That's what she told me. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about gastric bypass. Who's heard of gastric bypass? Okay, who knows someone who's had a gastric bypass? Okay, about half. I bet you it's everybody. I bet you you know someone who's had this operation. It's a pretty common operation. But that person maybe is not out. They're maybe not telling you publicly. 
So what do we do? We actually um, rearrange the intestines. What we do is we take a stapler and we cut the stomach into two unequal halves. The upper half is about the size of an egg, and the lower half we just leave in there. And the food comes down and goes into this upper part, which we call the gastric pouch. And if we didn't do anything else, it would have nowhere to go. So we divide the intestines and we bring up one end and we make a connection here. And that allows a pathway for the food. But you still have a stomach, you still have, still makes gastric juice and acid and all those juices go down and meets bile and pancreatic enzyme and all those digestive juices come down, meet the small bowel here and digestion occurs normally. So why does it work? Well, if you just look at the picture, this is kind of like your new stomach here. It's not very big. We call that restriction. And there's certainly a restrictive component here. In other words, instead of going to Cheesecake Factory and you order a dinner and they bring out a plate that's like this big, and you think, Jesus Christ, this is enough to feed my whole family. Which it, it is, by the way. You shouldn't be eating that much food in one sitting. Um, you know, if you brought out a little tea saucer of the same food and ate it, you would feel full after this operation. You would still enjoy it, taste good, doesn't make you feel sick. It's just all it takes is that little tea saucer um, amount, and you feel full, so you stop eating. Well, another reason is the food gets delivered straight into the intestines. And it turns out your intestines is an endocrine uh, organ. Your intestines secrete dozens and dozens of hormones, and all those hormones go up to the brain and tell you to stop eating. And so you get an early satiety effect from, that, from those hormones. Now, now, I thought I might show a video of us doing one of these. Do you guys want to see it? All right, just for fun. Now, if any of you have a sensitive stomach and are worried you may get sick watching surgery, just close your eyes, and I'll tell you when we're all done, okay? <laughs> And then you can open your eyes. Okay, here we go. So we do this operation laparoscopically. And what that means is instead of just making a big incision in the abdomen, we actually inflate the abdomen full of air. And then we've got these really elongated instruments that we stick through straws. And you can see I've got a little grasper, which is like a little hand. I've got this energy device, which cuts and divides. This is the colon right here. Here's the liver up here. This is what a human insides looks like. This is what your colon looks like. And you can see all this fat around the colon. We call that the omentum. And then what we do, we're going to make that downstream connection in the small bowel first. So here's the small intestines. And we're going to march downstream. And this, is, this fatty area down here is called the mesentery. That's where the blood supply is that feeds the small intestines. And now we've got this special stapler that forms three rows of staples and then it divides in the middle. And this is a watertight thing. So now we divide these intestines and the mesentery a little bit and clip. Okay. And then we're going to make what's called a rulim, which is this is the part that's eventually going to go up to that gastric pouch. Now we haven't made the gastric pouch yet, but we will. And so we're going to go down here. And now what we've got to do is make a connection and anastomosis between these two loops of bowel. So the way we do that is we have this little special instrument that can tie inside the body. 
And uh, this is me, this is my left hand doing the tying, this is my right hand doing the tying. And uh, you can see, uh, now what's cool about this is I'm, I'm doing this on a video. So I'm just watching a TV screen. The patient's right in front of me, and my instruments are inside the patient, but I actually can't see the small bowel with my own eyes. I'm only looking at the projection on a video screen. So that's called laparoscopic surgery. And that's a pretty common technique nowadays. So here I've got my special stapler, and I've stapled these two together so that there's a two staple lines and then a hole in the middle. And then I've just got this little hole in the bowel that I need to close up. And so I put three little stitches, and then I've got another stapler, and I staple the bowel off. Okay? So that's called the jejunojejunostomy which is Greek for connection between the bowels, basically. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit here and go up to the stomach part. Okay, so here we are. Now we're looking at the liver here. And here's the liver up here, and here's the stomach below. And we're retracting the liver up. And we're putting this grasper here to hold the liver up out of the way. And now we're looking at the stomach. And we're identifying the lesser curve of the stomach. And we're interested in making this gastric pouch. So to do that, we're going to cut a little hole in the blood supply of the stomach here with this special little tool. And we're going to kind of get in. There's a little space back there that I know is always there. So I'm looking for that little space. And then eventually we find it. And now we're going to make a gastric pouch. And we're going to do that with this stapler here. And we're going to fire the stapler. And you can see this part of the stomach up here is going to be the new stomach, the gastric pouch. And then this part below is going to be the gastric remnant. There's that little hole that I told you is always there. And now I'm just going to use a linear stapler, and we're just going to staple right on up. And see this little thing up here? That's your spleen sitting up there. This is the superior pole of the spleen. Here's the diaphragm just beyond it. And so I'm looking for that spleen, and that's my target. And I'm going to cruise on up here and divide the stomach. probably takes two or three fires. Okay, if you have your eyes closed, we're almost done. <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay, so now we've completely divided the stomach. Here we are. And we're just, I got a little sponge rag here and it kind of mops up a little of the heme. Okay, so now this is going to be my new gastric pouch, or I should say the patient's new gastric pouch. So this is her new little stomach. So. So now what we've got to do is we've got to make a connection between the small bowel and the stomach. And the way we do that, we've got this special little device that goes down through the throat. And so what we do is we cut a little hole, and we pass this tubing down. And it's connected to this little metal ring piece, which is called the Orville. And we cut off the delivery tubing, and we've got this little steel piece hanging out here. And then what we do is we go find that loop of bowel. So our goal here is to connect this loop of bowel up to that stomach, to that new gastric pouch. So we kind of stretch it up there, get it pretty close. And then we cut a little hole in the bowel right here. Okay, you can see the lumen of the bowel. That's what the inside of your small intestines looks like, if you ever wondered. Okay, you can see nice and pink and healthy. And then we've got this special stapler, and this is a really cool instrument. What this thing does 
is it staples in a circle like a donut and then it punches a hole in the middle. And so we mate that with this steel piece up in the gastric pouch and then the instrument crimps them together and then fires a circular staple line. We call it, the technical term is an EEA anastomosis, but it just means a circular anastomosis and there it is. And then we just staple off the cut end, the open end of the bowel so everything's watertight. And that's pretty much it. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> so this operation takes about two or three hours. And uh, the recovery time's pretty prompt. You go home in uh, two, two or three days, basically. How much does it cost? How much does it cost? Um, <laughs> so uh, the hospital makes about 20 grand. And the surgeon makes maybe about three grand, and the anesthesiologist makes about three grand. So that's what it costs your insurance company. Now, if you were cash pay, triple all those numbers, basically. Okay, um, I don't want to go from the beginning. Lower right. Lower right, here we go. Is it from this slide? Okay. All right. So who do we offer this? Well, it's only the people who have a body mass index 40 or plus. But I'll tell you, if your obesity has already started damaging your body, meaning you got diabetes, you got high blood pressure, you got bad joints, you got sleep apnea, then we kind of relax it to 35. So that's kind of a key concept. We really only offer surgery to people who are really, really obese. We're not really interested in offering surgery to people who are a little overweight or even obese you've got to be morbidly obese. And the reason why is we're talking about surgery. We're talking about rearranging your intestines, so there's some definite risks involved. And we need, to, we need the benefits to outweigh the risks. And if you're only 15, 20, 30 pounds overweight, um, the benefits do not outweigh the risks. Okay, well, how well does it work? This is a study that was done in Sweden that followed patients out 20 years. And this group was just treated with diet and exercise. And you can see they had a little bit of weight loss, but then they regained. And out 20 years, they were pretty much had no change in their weight. And those that got the gastric bypass, you could see you lose most weight at one to two years. You get a little bit of weight regain, and then you hit your plateau. And the plateau is sustained out for 20 years. And I wanted to put this slide in. There's kind of a conception that maybe like 10 years out, you regain all the lost weight after surgery, and that's not true. So I want to jump into metabolic effects, and I, I think we've got another 15 minutes. Now, I'll tell you, we talk about doing surgery for weight loss, but I'll tell you, in my mind, as a guy that does this for a living, I don't even care that much about the weight loss. What I care about is the metabolic disease. Can we get rid of your diabetes? Can we get rid of your arthritis? Can we get rid of your sleep apnea? Can we normalize your cholesterol? Can we normalize your blood pressure? That's what we're talking about doing here. And if you just look around here, you can see the, meta the effects of metabolic are really pronounced. Now I'm gonna show you a bunch of data really fast. Let's talk about HbA1c. Who's heard of HbA1c? Okay, a couple people. So if you have diabetes, what happens is there's too much sugar in your blood, and that sugar changes a, hormone, a protein that's in your bloodstream. It's actually on your red blood cells in your bloodstream. And we call it a glycosylated hemoglobin. 
And it's basically the average of all your blood glucoses over the past three months. So just think of it as just a marker for your blood glucose level. The higher it is, the more out of control your diabetes is. So a diabetic, a normal person is 6% or less. Here's a group of diabetics who had a gastric bypass. They had an HbA1c of 8.2%, and you can see after the operation they completely normalized it to 5.5%. That means these patients are no longer diabetic. How many can we get off meds? If you take a group who are on oral agents, we can get about 87% off their oral agents entirely. And if you're on insulin and drugs, we can get about four out of five off insulin entirely, and we can get um, a significant about two out of three patients off their drugs entirely. So the operation is very, very effective at treating diabetes. And in fact, if you um, looked at the headlines, there were two major papers just published in the New England Journal just a couple months ago. And this really shook the medical world because it basically was a head-to-head of best endocrine therapy for diabetes versus surgery. And the endocrinologists were in one corner and the surgeons were in the other corner. And we put this study on and we had a big a big head-to-head knockout. And uh, you might guess who won, because I'm showing you the data. <laughs> Turned out to be the surgeons. So, you know, the world's best endocrinologist, again, HbA1c, could basically get that HbA1c to fall about a point to a point and a half, which is pretty respectable. But nowhere near as good as surgery, where we could get it to drop like 3%. If you look at the number of people who were cured of their diabetes... It was 0% versus like 60% cured of their diabetes. Now, that's a strong statement. Whoever thought that the cure for diabetes would be a surgeon? But it's true if you're morbidly obese. Okay, blood pressure, not quite as good. I'll be honest, not quite as good. About 50% of my patients have high blood pressure, and we can get about 40% of them off their meds. The usual pattern is someone comes in and they're on maybe two or three drugs for the blood pressure and we get them down to like one. That's the usual pattern. So not quite as strong of an effect as diabetes, but still pretty darn good. What about cholesterol? If you get a gastric bypass and you follow cholesterol levels, your LDL cholesterol drops about 22% and your HDL goes up about 40%. So that's the right direction for both of those. Now, how many guys are on a statin? like simvastatin, lovastatin. There's a few people in the room for cholesterol. Now, I'll tell you a 20% drop in HDL is about as good as best statin therapy. So if you have high cholesterol and you're morbidly obese, you're better off with a bypass than going on the statin. And finally, cancer. Remember, I made the point earlier that if you have obesity, you have a higher risk of cancer just by being obese. And so you might wonder if we get the weight off with surgery, do we reduce the risk of cancer? And sure enough, we do. Here's a group of about 4,000 patients, again in Sweden, and they looked over 16 years at the cumulative, end, uh, cumulative probability of getting a cancer. And you can see if you were in the obese, untreated arm, this was your basic risk of getting a cancer. And if you had surgery, it dropped down to the red curve here. And that was highly statistically significant. And if you add up all of these effects, Will I live longer with surgery? The answer is yes. 
And again, here was a nice study, 4,000 patients. And the dotted lines here, that's your risk of dying by virtue of your obesity and obesity-related diseases versus time over 16 years. So you can see if you're obese, out 15 years, you had about a 10% chance of being dead. And if you had surgery, well, now look at the curves. Initially, it's a little bit higher, right? Well, that makes sense because it's rare, but an occasional patient will die from surgery or from a complication of surgery. But then the curves cross at about two years, and from that point forward, you're better off having had surgery in terms of your all-cause mortality. So you take a little more risk up front, but you have less overall risk over your lifespan. Now, I'm not going to go into this. Uh, This is fascinating. One of the things that was observed, just focusing on the diabetes, is that um, if you take a morbidly obese diabetic and you do a gastric bypass, a lot of times the diabetes is gone within a couple weeks, and no one really knows why. No one really knows why. Now, I do a lot of general surgery, and I have some pretty sick patients, and those patients, we will frequently starve for a couple weeks around their operation. And when they're diabetic, their diabetes doesn't go away. They're still every bit as diabetic as they were before. So why is it if you take a part of someone's colon out, nothing happens to their diabetes, but if you do this gastric bypass, their diabetes is gone within two weeks. It's kind of magical. And we're still figuring it out, but you can see from all these hormones, and it's complicated, and we're still trying to sort it out. Now, there are complications to both, and here I put bypass and band, so you never get a free lunch. And uh, there is a low risk of having a problem, so you can get a stricture of that connection. You can get a little ulcer in your small intestines. You can get gallstones in your gallbladder. You can get internal hernias with bowel obstruction. If you look at your lifetime risk, it's pretty low, but it's not zero. And this is really why we don't offer surgery to people who are just a little bit overweight, because in the risk-benefit, it's not worth taking on the risk of one of these problems, although it's a low risk for not much benefit. If you're 10, 20, 30 pounds overweight, your life expectancy is not really significantly impacted by that degree of overweightness. Um, But if you're 100 pounds overweight, it sure is. Remember, that's that 10-year life expectancy loss. So we can give you those years back, but we do take on a little bit of a surgical risk here um, early on. And finally, um, the operations do require that you take uh, nutritional supplements. And so if you get a gastric bypass your body won't be as good at absorbing a few micronutrients, so you just have to supplement, which is usually not a big deal. Most of us take vitamins anyway. Most of us are on some herbals or whatever, so um, it's usually not a big deal for patients. Okay, well, I think I'll end it there and open up for questions. So the question is, um, if you stratified this cohort of patients... Uh, by their eating habits, could you discern those that had a greater effect versus lesser effect, essentially? And I'll tell you, um, the premise of the question is a little complicated because the premise is that dietary cholesterol affects serum cholesterol. And that relationship is pretty weak. It's true that if you severely limit the cholesterol in your diet, 
that you can bring your serum cholesterol levels down. But it takes a very Spartan approach. I mean, you have to really get your ingested cholesterol level down to almost zero to really drop your, um, your serum cholesterol. So um, I'm a little bit of a skeptic with dietary control of cholesterol. I think it's extremely hard to do and, and live in America and have a reasonable quality of life. Um, that, the study that you envision hasn't been done specifically. What has been done is people have looked at uh, the pattern of eating after these operations and observed that, uh, that sweet eating has, uh, really goes away. If you're the type of person who has a bowl of candies in your desk at work or is making yourself a bowl of ice cream at 9 o'clock every night um, or craving, you know, drinking five Pepsis a day, all those sort of sweet craving behaviors tend to go away through mechanisms that's not entirely clear. If you talk to the patients, they say, you know, it, I just don't really crave it anymore. I can't even explain why. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. It's probably related a little bit to a process called dumping, which is uh, if you have simple sugars dumping into your small intestines all at once, it can make you feel kind of bloated and sick and uncomfortable for an hour or two. Um, so that is a negative reinforcement on the sweet eating behavior. But I think there's something else. I think that um, there's other hormones at work, and just people, they don't even crave it. You know, They're not rummaging through the cupboards. So that's an interesting side effect. More questions in the back. The question was, you know, in Dr. Sachs' article, do we have any insight why the weight started to come back over time? Well, Dr. Sachs didn't substratify his groups to look at risk factors for weight regain. And if you look at the error bars here, you can see that there weren't that many outliers who maintained their weight loss. See, you know what I mean? Like, to maintain, you would have to be at a point down here, which would pull these error bars. If you had many people that were maintaining their weight, you would expect to see wide error bars on these later time points. And that wasn't observed. In other words, everybody. And the simple explanation is we live in America. So you go to Applebee's and you order up a dinner, they're going to serve you 2,000 calories. And... Uh, you're probably going to eat a good chunk of those calories. You know, We eat socially. There's a lot of reasons we eat, um, and we don't really burn much if you think about it. Do you know the average American? Here's a fact that stunned me. The average American walks 170 yards per day. That's it. It's pretty much from bed to shower to car to work, <laughs> from work to home, home to bed. It's 170 yards. Think about that. Think about that. That's how sedentary our world is. So we got McDonald's on every corner. Our supermarkets are filled with high fructose corn syrup, calorie-rich foods. You go out to eat, you get 2,000-calorie meals served up to you, and you walk less than 200 yards a day. Is it any wonder why we're obese? Is it any wonder why these guys regain their weight? How many studies mention exercise at all as a component. So I'm wondering if you... So in this study, they did it. They actually, they had a lot of, um, they had an exercise component to it um, and a lot of behavior modification. They tried to roll everything we can throw at the disease into it. Um, and the bottom line, it works for a couple of years, but then it peters out. Now, I, I really sound as a skeptic, and I, I'm, it's, 
absolutely diet is the first thing we should try. There are many, many people who can control their weights with diet. And you got to remember, obesity is a disease of poor, uneducated people. And you can get a lot of ground by just educating people about food content, simple ideas of food composition, the idea of calorie density, the idea of protein, fat, and carbs within food, uh, uh, making healthy food choices, food selection, planning meals, taking time to eat your meals. So there's a lot to be gained, and that's where we need to be for people who are overweight, 5, 10, 15, 20 pounds. But you know, once you have morbid obesity, once you're 100 pounds overweight, those interventions don't work. We know that. In the back. So the question was, can I explain the difference between band and bypass? And uh, I'm going to pull up a slideshow that we actually give all of our new patients. You, you might recognize some of the slides. And I think I've got a picture of a band operation here. Okay. So here's a band. This is lap band. And what the operation is, is we put this little seat belt that's made out of silastic on the upper part of the stomach. Now, we don't want the stomach sliding around like a napkin ring holder would hold a napkin. So what we do is we wrap the stomach over the ring and we sew the stomach to itself right here. And the basic idea is that we are trying to create a little chamber up here, which is kind of like your new stomach. And then it's pretty tight to empty out of that band into your native stomach. And so you lose a little bit of weight from that. Um, now, everybody's stomach is a different size, so you've got to figure out a way to adjust this. And also, this picture doesn't show all the fat. Remember all that fat that was around that stomach when I showed you the video? So as you lose that fat, this thing will get looser on its own. And so you need a way to tighten it. So what they do is they put a little balloon on the inside. And the balloon is connected to connector tubing that goes to a little port that sits on your skin. So then I can stick a needle in here and either inject or withdraw some fluid, and it inflates or deflates the balloon. So that's what a lap band is. Now, a lap band, think of a lap band as a lesser dose of surgery, and you get a lesser effect, basically. The surgical risk of having a complication in the first 30 days is less. The operation is technically easier because we're not dividing your intestines and sewing and cutting and connecting. Um, but with a less, lesser dose of surgery, you get a lesser effect. So you lose maybe half the weight that you would have with a bypass over time. In the back here. So the question is, uh, if Colorado and Wyoming are uh, outlier states in their lack of obesity, could it be the altitude? And I have no idea. I don't think anyone's ever looked at that. Um, I think it's just an outdoorsy culture. Actually, I grew up in Colorado, so I know. And I think it's just a more outdoorsy culture, truthfully. Wyoming, I don't really know. But there's just uh, ranches in Wyoming, so maybe everyone's out on the ranch working. It's interesting, obesity, think about it. Our, it's, our genes haven't really changed, right, versus 100 years ago. Our culture's changed somewhat. But, uh, I mean, the thing that has changed is 100 years ago, we were all working pretty hard just to generate food, you know, on our farms or ranches or whatever. 
and or doing manual labor. And if you look at the difference between today, think about it, probably most everyone you know has a pretty sedentary job, desk job, staring at a computer. Think about it. It's a radical change in society. That's part of why we have this epidemic. Okay, last question, then we'll call it. Do vegetarians have less obesity? Um, Can I say no with an asterisk? (laughs) I think that the, the problem is people who are vegetarian tend to be higher educated, tend to make healthier food choices, tend to be more active, tend to consume less calories. So they do tend to be, have, be less obese. But it's not the vegetarianism as an independent predictor. There's a lot of other codependent variables, I think. Um, so it's pretty tough to sort of tease out. Is being vegetarian healthier? I'm not going to touch that question. <laughs> All right, so uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.